Alpha Junos and JV50s. Get the jump on the release of the Korg. Give in to the sample-based synthesis. And arigato, Ikutaro Kakehashi. Because it's time to talk dull to me. Welcome back to the podcast. I am Omen Thomas Sade. And I am Nick McGill. Together we are a double voce called Feckless Momes. And this, my sweet synthesized sons of bitches, this is Talk Tall to Me. <laughs> a sultry space echo in the wristwatch repair unit of Prog Rock, in which noise filter Nick and oscillator Omen will warm up to the waveform of every single track that resonance rock band Jethro Tull have ever plugged into our collective port socket. We will patch the pink noise of David Dynamic Attack Peg, verify the vibrato of Peter John Vitesse, compress Jerry Conway's cutoff, and modulate Martin Barr's memory wheel. And if we can find just the correct settings, we may actually be able to get a monophonic sound out of the flute flanger, the coarse-tuned cat lover, the touch-sensitive tunester, the expansion board elocutionist, the duophonic dervish, Ian After Effect Anderson. Nice. Nice. That was a past-futuristic opening. Retrofuturistic. Yeah, retrofuturistic. Yeah. yeah, thank you. It was retrofuturistic. Yeah. Thank you for noticing that. Yeah. Nick, we are continuing to dive into the past future, the future unknown of the past. That we are. We have surmounted both of the newest albums, both Zelagine and Rockflieta. And now before we return to our regularly scheduled programming, we have, because of the grace of official friend of the pod... Too late. He can't take it back. JDA. JDA. PDA. I got PDA from JDA in the tube. Because of his, uh, <laughs> because of his special attention to us, we have gotten access, Nick, to the early release of the 40th anniversary of Broadsword and the Biest. Mm-hmm. That we have, that we have. There are a lot of tracks on there that are various takes on things. There's the remaster, obviously, of the album itself. But we are, in particular, paying attention to eight specific tracks that we have never heard before. And when you say that there are a number of tracks, what we are going to be covering represents about a tenth of what all will be released. And that includes the Steve Wilson remixes and everything. There are 81 tracks being released. That's a lot of tracks. That's a lot of tracks. As they say, yeah. I wouldn't have even seen so many tracks if I went to the train station. <laughs> if you say it in like a slightly Southern drawl, it sounds like it's a phrase, like it's a, a an old timey phrase, like that it, it, it can be applied there doesn't work though really i've seen fewer tracks on jimmy meth's forearms Ooh. speaking of mexico new york oof. <laughs> <laughs> 
Nick, what is the first track to which we have the pleasure of which we will put in a listen at the moment? Oh my goodness. Too many, too many words in that sentence. We are listening to two of the instrumentals this week. We are going to listen to Roland's Entry mm -hmm. and The Swirling Pit. And we will begin with Roland's Entry. Let's roll it on to the entry point of our ears. Let's go enter Roland. Nick McGill. Goodness gracious me. That was Roland's entry. C'était l'entrance de Roland. De Roland. Uh, before we jump into that really quick, <laughs> I, I had to clear my throat there. Um, I just want to, you, you mentioned them in your intro, but I just want to go back and revisit who our personnel is here in 1981. It's a great idea. Ian Anderson, lead vocals, flute, acoustic guitar, fair light CMI. The fairest of lights. The fairest of lights. Martin Barr, acoustic guitar, electric guitar. Mm -hmm. Dave Pegg, backing vocals, bass guitar, mandolin. Peter John Vitesse, backing vocals, Keep Vitis? Vitas? I forget what he said it was. I'm second <laughs> guessing to, myself. Back to the swirling pit of pronunciation yeah, right. here. Uh, backing vocals, keyboards, piano, synthesizer, and Jerry Conway, drums, and percussion. Very good. Yes, thank you for that recap of personnel. That's important. It is 1981, and this was a track that didn't make the release of Broadsword, but was recorded at that time during mm -hmm. those recording sessions. Yep. This, I believe, is the playing of potentially just one of those aforementioned band members. That's what it feels like, yeah. And if I were to hazard a guess, I would guess that that is the work of Peter John Vitesse, or perhaps Peter John Vitesse. Could be one of those, actually. Yeah, I do think- One I, or the other. I do think it's PJV. Yeah, I mean, it's just PJV dropped some acid and had a two-minute trip, and this is what we got. <laughs> It's the tiniest little amount of acid. <laughs> it was actually a car battery exploded and a little bit got in his eye. Yeah. It was like, yeah. He tweaked for a little bit and, and spasmed. Yeah. Let's talk about this two-minute spasm that is Roland's entry. What does it do for you, Nick? Does it create any sensations for you? This very much feels like something that we haven't seen in a while. I think like the last time we saw it was probably... War Child, something like that, where we have kind of like a return to themes that we've heard. Well, actually, honestly, we heard it in um, Rock Flute. We heard it in Rock Flute. Yeah, yeah. But this is this is just kind of an aside. This is like a scene in a, in a movie that kind of pulls back a feeling that we've had before, and it pulls in different sounds yes. from different parts of that theme. And in in here, I get. Too Many Two in the very beginning. That wah, ah. wah. Oh, interesting, yeah. And then it transitions into a sound that's more beastie, I think. I definitely noticed beastie. Beastie! It was surprising to me how quickly that sound put me in that in the Beastie track. Yeah. I wonder if it's the 
if it's literally the types of sounds that are being created rather than the melodic patterns? I think that has a lot to do with it. I never, ever, ever think of Broadsword as being a, a synth-heavy album, but by golly, it is synth-heavy. It sure is, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that that's not your association with it, but, I mean, even if you think of the title track... That's all synth. Yeah. At least it's, it's a lot of synth. It's very synth-backed. It just feels like it ought to be like a close cousin of the folk trio, like a harder version of those. Yeah. You know, like if they hadn't done it with synth, it would fit perfectly with those, you know? Yeah. But it's like a second cousin now. <laughs> it's it's a cousin. It's a, Yeah, it's like you don't know whose child they are, but they're always at the reunions. Not a blood cousin. Right. They just show up. I wrote down that this was a swoopy, sweepy sci-fi fantasy of drones with dark gestures and heavenly arpeggios. Yeah. Yeah, that could be on the book jacket. That's pretty perfect, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get it on a t-shirt. Oh, perfect. Yeah. I did note that some of the sounds we have are very reminiscent of Beastie. Mm. I love that it starts out with this sense of positive sounds. Of the, mm, wow. Mm. Wow. Yeah. It's very major. It opens up a space. Even though the sound quality is very kind of mystical and darkish, the chords and the phrases are very exciting, mm -hmm. very adventurous. And then as it goes, it gets darker and darker. I think that's like synth brass, right? Like it's supposed to be like horns in the beginning, which is always a brighter sure. sound anyway. Yes, yes, something horn adjacent. Yeah. As we get around the 115 mark, we have this dark, chunky sequence that reminds me so much of Stranger Things. I have it in my notes. The yeah. pew into Stranger Things sound. And then you have the... And then it chills out, yeah. It's interesting that, let's say it's PJV, is doing that technique where... You have a musical sequence, and then I don't know if it's flanging or what it is. There's some sort of a filter on it. So it, it starts sounding very thick and muddy. And then as it goes, it kind of mm -hmm. pans so it sounds clearer and clearer as it goes and almost like it's coming toward you. Yeah. The whole thing is very cinematic. It is. It very much is. Yeah. I have that it's it's very haunting. It feels very unsolved mysteries, like shitty true crime podcasts. I would not blink if I heard this as like the intro music, as someone's like, and then she ate a sandwich that was filled with knives and he buried her head in Kansas and then brought the rest of her body to his mother and she baked it in a pie. But what type of sandwich was it? It'd be perfect. This would be an amazing soundtrack for yeah. a podcast. Yeah, it feels... The album itself, Broadsword as a whole, doesn't feel, doesn't emit one of those feelings where it's like, oh, I could see this. War Child is a cohesive piece. You could see that. You know that it was intended to be like a soundtrack. Right. Too old to rock and roll. You get the same feeling. Broadsword initially doesn't feel like that, but including this in there really pulls it all together. We start to get a, a different picture. That's why these these tracks are so exciting mm -hmm. and why the why the new release is so fun. Yeah. We get to see kind of what was the primordial soup out of which Beastie arose. Right. Yeah. It's like 
a minestrone. It's a, yes, look out for the beans. It was, it's like in Stormwatch, there's like, there's Dark Ages, there's, oh, Chrissy talks about these few all the time that like there's the one that harkens back to like two others that are separate and they like pull the units in and it feels like the two were set up and then you have that full complete song. And if I go through the Stormwatch track list, I could probably figure out which ones they are, but it's, hmm. it feels like it's that piece that brings them all together. To your point, hearing this track, I could imagine Broadsword and the Beast, the movie, you know, it's, it's mm -hmm. yeah. the Viking retelling of Grendel and Beowulf. Yes. Is it a Norwegian art film? about a knight who plays chess against death yes. yes it is is it is it a danish vampire movie absolutely it feels very genre mm -hmm. with the inclusion of this track and yeah it is great old aces die hard is the one that i was thinking and that's the tail end of heavy horses that was episode yeah. number 145 and i think i think it was old aces die hard and dark ages and like one other that it pulled in this track is also in the tradition, in the occasional tradition of let the keyboardist <laughs> have a little fun. Can a tradition be occasional? Is that? It's, it's a semi-annual tradition. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. It's a semi-decadual Yeah, there you go. Tradition. Like that, yeah. It's hectus and tenatory. Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's just let him go. Let's see what PJV's got. We'll pull out elements and deposit them into other songs, and then we'll ditch that track. It's faster to just let him record what he wants to record than to explain to him why you don't have time to let him do that. <laughs> In post, you can pull out the pieces that you need, create songs from those. <laughs> this track has been stuck to a refrigerator at the Maison Rouge for the last 40 years. <laughs> Steve Wilson finally pulled it down, dusted it off, yeah. and was like, we're going to include this. Oh, we could use this, yeah. But it's great. I genuinely, like, I would be thrilled if this was part of the album. And if 1981 was a decade where they were primarily releasing things on CDs, this probably would have been included. Yeah. Because why not? Just throw it on there. It's a CD. Nobody cares. Give them 40 tracks. I mean, there was a space limit, but... Exactly. <laughs> Nick, should we talk a little bit about the title of this track, Roland's Entry? I want to talk one more thing before we do that. That transition that we have at, like, in, it's like 110, yeah. 108, something yeah. like that. That pew! It very much reminds me of that THX sound oh, sure. system in front of movies. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. A movie from my childhood, the Tiny Toons Summer Vacation movie. They do a farce of that where it's called Thud and it's and at the very end it goes, the audience is now deaf. <laughs> and that's all I can think of when I hear
Roland's entry. Let's go. All right. Bit of supposition on my part. Give it to me. And it is entirely likely that, as per usual, we are very much on the wrong track. But we like going down paths. So <laughs> so come with me. That's what we do. Is there a scary cave at the end? Maybe. Will we go into Farmer Johnson's field and get shot at? Perhaps. But let's have fun. <laughs> We're going to have a gale time while we do it, though, so it's fine. Roland is the name of one of the foremost manufacturers of synthesizers in the world. It is a company uh, out of Japan, and they released a whole slew of synthesizers starting starting in 1973 with the SH-1000, and it was the first mass production synthesizer that was made in Japan. It's a Japanese line. Hmm. Okay. As they went forward, they pretty much released a new synthesizer every single year. Wow. And the one that was released in 1981 was the Jupiter 8. It is described on the Roland US website as a Dulux 8-voice polyphonic analog synthesizer with 64 sound memory. It's smorgasbord of features including key split, patch preset, and auto arpeggio earned this synth global praise and legendary status. It's pretty cool to see visually the evolution of them. Mm -hmm. And I can very much imagine the band deciding to invest in this state-of-the-art, top-of-the-line Japanese synthesizer, giving it to PJV and saying, go play with this and figure out what it can do. And this track being the result of Roland's entry, the, the entry mm. of, of the Roland synthesizer. And I don't know if this is at all true. And I'm sure that somewhere on the deep, dark recesses of the web, we could find out exactly what synth he was playing. That sounds highly logical and likely and honestly when we get the big old book that may have the information about this song about the album itself the liner notes we may see an explanation there it's possible again it's funny to keep looking at the evolution of these they've been manufacturing them I okay it looks like the final one was manufactured in 2014 I'm not sure what happened oh wow at that point but they're very, very cool. And it seems like every year they were innovating something that was very useful to people who wanted to experiment with this with this sound. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder why they stopped. They're like, we've done enough. We've given all we've got. And they left Earth. <laughs> <laughs> they got in their Jupiter 8 and blasted off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's as, as good a, a theory as any. I wonder... For things like instrumental pieces in particular, yeah, I wonder how much there's like, okay, let's just whip up an instrumental and then they find it like in the annals, dust it off somewhere. And it's like, oh, this is an instrumental. And then, and then they name it. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, did Steve Wilson name it, you know, or something? Right, 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 right. I'm not sure the likelihood of that. Because I think in the past, we've seen once or twice, very rarely, but we've seen once or twice where the title of the instrumental is just like blues instrumental or minor or something, something, you know, so, something very right. generic because it's a couple of tracks that didn't really go anywhere. Yeah. So because this is also just two minutes of like farting around on a synth, the fact that it's named Roland's 
entry makes me think that that's what it was named as opposed to just like crazy synth tune 1981 right yeah Kakihashi was the Japanese gentleman who who established the Roland Corporation. He got his start after World War II fixing wristwatches and g- hmm. got into electronics through that route. He named the company Roland Corporation, not as has frequently been repeated on the internet because of the French romantic poem Chanson du Roland, but because it had two soft consonants. <laughs> I love a good soft consonant, don't I you? The softest of consonants. Almost immediately after he set up the company, Hammond Organ Company uh, mm. reached out and said, we want to buy 60% of your company. Oh, wow. And be majority shareholders. And he said, no, thank you. No arigato. No arigato. And then he, because uh, other companies had the Japanese market mostly cornered, he primarily dealt to the US and Europe. Wow. Not a bad footprint to have. I'll tell you that. Yeah. I'd never heard of the Roland. You know, we'd heard of the Hammond, but yeah, you know, maybe this was the, I feel like this was the age in which, you know, Japan was raising its profile in terms of electronics. So maybe this was yeah, a hot right. new Japanese toy. It feels like one of those instances where, you know, there, there are like hole in the wall ramen restaurants that are like the best in the world. And they're like some of the best ramen chefs in the world, but they're just like, yeah, I'll put out a couple of bowls a day. You know, I'll put out a couple hundred. And it seems like it's one of those instances of just humility of like, yeah, okay, we'll sell our synthesizer, you know, and just like they didn't get big and they didn't blow up and they didn't try to like market it and things like that. You know, I think they did blow up though. I, oh, did they? It seems like it was, you know, a pretty, you know, maybe they weren't the biggest synth company, mm-hmm. but it seems like seems like they were one of the, the major players. You know, they were competing with Moog. Mm. They were innovating. They were doing all this kind of stuff. Yeah. So strange. I mean, and we are in no way synth experts, but like given our minor exposure to synth in the last couple of decades of Tall, it seems strange that we hadn't heard of a Roland. I mean, I know Moog. I know, I know Hammond. You know, I know Mellotron. The other... Carnally. <laughs> I know Mellotron in ways I didn't know it was knowable to be known. <laughs> Biblically. The only other connection that I could make with Roland doesn't make any sense at all, which is, of course, Roland Kirk, the famous flute saxophonist, uh, musician, yeah. innovator, from whom Ian was inspired stylistically. But right. I don't think that that makes any sense, given the content of the piece. I mean, you can really stretch it and say, oh, what he did with the flute, we are going to do with the synth? Ah, could be. Maybe. I don't know. The only thing that I can think of, and I don't... Oh, you... Ooh, I wonder when. The only thing that I can think of, the only reference to a Roland that I know of is from The Dark Tower. The main character's name is Roland, and... When did it come out? Oh, 82. It came out in 82, so it wouldn't even count. Maybe that's what Adele was going on about. We could have had it all Roland in the deep. That's it. Roland in the deep. Yeah. Yeah. The tall dark tower reference, however, is that Charlie the Choo Choo is named after Locomotive Breath. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. All right. Anything else to say about Roland's entry? 
<laughs> no, it's what a fun sound. It's a delight. So much fun. I love it so much. Yeah. I could have it be four minutes and be very happy with it. It's very atmospheric. It belongs on, do you know the show Echoes? It's a radio, a public radio show. It's all like space rock and just really like explosions oh, in the sky oh, and stuff like yes, that. Yeah. Yes, they used to play it at midnight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's late, yeah. And there was some period of time in my life where I would always be getting out of work or getting out of a show and I would get in my vehicle and turn on the radio and this voice would say, I'm somebody, somebody. This is Echoes, and I'm John DeLibretto. This is John DeLibretto, and you're listening to Echoes. Yeah. And I was always like, what? What's happening? <laughs> and then it'd be like, wow, 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 wow. <laughs> For an hour and a half. <laughs> For an hour and a half. Like, driving in the night. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. Yeah, he's got such a rich baritone. Yeah, we we listen to it this day, to this day. Like you can find like apps and stuff that'll let you listen to any radio station across the country. So if you can find when it's on at like six in the afternoon, six in the evening rather, you can pop it on when it's not time to go to bed. So yeah, we'll we'll put it on and just read on Saturday nights because uh, we just sit there and listen to Echoes. Highly recommended. Great stuff. You're listening to Echoes. Sounds to lose your fucking mind to. <laughs> the walls are closing in and you're hearing echoes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Here we are halfway in between two instrumentals. We are going to jump into a really quick email. Previous writer inner from just last week, our friend Steiner. Steiner has written back in talking about the time signature from Protect and Survive last week. 4-4. Four, four. They boldly claimed that it was 4-4. Four, four. Oh, 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 oh. Pick me. Omen, Omen, do you have a question? Omen in the back. I have a theory that I want to share with you after this email, and I'm so glad that you reminded me of it. Uh, that's what I'm here for. Thank you, Steiner. Steiner writes back in and says, hi again. After having sent my last email to you where I laid out my, quote, time signature epiphany, unquote, of protect and survive in a rather smug way, I also decided to share this revelation with a friend of mine who has worked as a professional musician and who is now a music teacher. Uh-huh. He listened to the track a couple of times and then reported back to me that he had some misgivings about my theory. Oh, no. <laughs> How embarrassing. <laughs> He then sent me his analysis. Instrumental intro, 544434. 544434544444244424444. Then verse. <laughs> I guess this just confirms what we already know that not only Tull's lyrics, but also their music can be scrutinized, analyzed, and enjoyed at so many levels, even if the listener misses the mark a bit by jumping to their own conclusions. Well, this tiny topic got a lot bigger than what I first intended, and I will, of course, forgive you if you choose not to include any of this in your podcast. Thanks again. Hadet Gott Sat Lenge. Steiner. Steiner, thank you so much for writing in. You are in very good company for having gotten things wrong 
And you're in very good company with recanting. Tusintak, as I taught Omen how to say once. <laughs> and Galileo feels your pain. Yeah. Omen, your theory in relation to this, what do you got? Some weeks ago, Nick, you asked me why so much dance music is in 4-4. Oh, yeah, that was a while ago. Yeah. And why so much popular music is in 4-4 and why as a culture we seem to gravitate toward 4-4 and why the music of the populace so often is in 4-4 or 2-2. Yeah, I, I think that your answer was basically it's easy to dance to. Like it's easy to find that rhythm. And then I thought a little bit more about what I had said. And I thought, well, is that true? Is it just, you know, is that just a completely arbitrary number? But then I realized, Nick, what is four divisible by? Two. And how many feet do most people have? <laughs> Two. Because humans are bilateral. What's the phrase? We have bilateral symmetry, more or less. Mm-hmm. Speak for yourself. Some of us more than others. Stop staring at my tentacle. <laughs> Having a rhythm that is divisible by two allows us to go wonka, 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 yeah. wonka, wonka, and be in line with the phrases of the music so that we're always hitting yeah. the same side when the beat drops, when the next phrase starts, when the DJ drops the needle, when Shakira starts doing her special thing. So yeah. I think that we have an innate physical relationship to that 4-4 four, four time signature. That makes so much sense. That really does. In a subconscious way, it's that satisfying necessity for humans to like have a full cycle. You know, stopping in the sure. middle of something is just so off-putting and, and unsatisfying right. and disquieting. So to have that one-two, you have a start and you have a finish. And in those variations, you know, six six four six eight or whatever you, you know it it works seven twelve and that's why something like seven twelve is so strange and so novel well and even something that is is divisible by three like six eight or three four you have to think about it a little bit exactly yeah and so I think that something that's, that's divisible by two, it literally appeals to a crowd. A crowd of people can all go boom, 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 boom. Right. There's something so basic about it that exactly you don't need to understand prog timing. You know, everybody can move to this if they have any sense of rhythm at all. And most people who don't have a sense of rhythm, you know, you can get into that flow. Yes, that's my theory. It came to me in a dream. I like it. Nick, we have the pleasure with this double feature of listening to a second track. What is the title of that track? That we do. This one is twice the length of Roland's entry <laughs> and twice as weird. This is going to be uncomfortable for Roland. Ooh, ooh, the swirling pit. The swirling pit. Let's swave a plissom. Nick, that is the recording of The Swirling Pit. Uh, it sure is a swirling pit. A swirling pit of time signatures. Relevant to our, our writer-inners conversation there. A swirling pit of musical ideas, even. So, the rare treat that we have with this track is hearing Ian introduce the song. 
in which he says, this is a Bavarian Irish tune. And as soon as he says it, he starts cracking up. This is an old Bavarian Irish folk song. It's called The Swirling Bits. It's so cool to hear him having fun. It's so rare to hear that. I mean, he may have fun all the time, but that is behind closed doors, clearly. (laughs) I'm safe in my fun cave. Here I am having fun. Scheduled time, 20 minutes of fun, beginning now. No one Alfred, Alfred, lock, (laughs) lock the fun cave. Gotham needs me to have five minutes of fun by myself. I've inflated the bouncy castle, Mr. Wayne. Now turn off the lights and don't talk to me. (laughs) Just stone-faced bouncing in a bouncy castle. (laughs) (laughs) The sound of my master having fun, yes. So when he said that, I thought he was making a joke. I thought he was taking the piss. But then they start off with that mandolin sequence. Yeah. At about a minute? Is that when it starts? Uh, I think it's sooner than that. It's right off the bat. It's the first, the moment that they start playing music. That ver- The first tune. Are you listening to the swirling pit? Because I hear a are we listening to two different songs? I'm listening to The Swirling Pit, track 45. Oh, there's two versions of The Swirling Pit. Oh, that's why. Okay, stand by. Let me listen to this. So that was the swirling pit. We just realized that Omen listened to the live version while I listened to the studio cut. And the studio cut had a very different beginning. Yeah, the live version is entirely, almost entirely acoustic or entirely acoustic. The studio version starts off with the dirtiest, most filthy, disrespectful bass and drumline that you've ever heard. Wow, 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 Filthy. And that, what I was struggling to find when we finished listening is that reminds me of a Ween song. I couldn't find which one it was. So if I find it, I'll drop it in here. If I don't find it, no one will hear this. Please let me know if you ever find your Ween Someday. It's an interesting mix of musical styles. In the live version, Ian describes it as a old Bavarian Irish folk tune. Can't even finish the line without laughing. Right, right, right. So what we have in the studio version is essentially three different things. One Mm -hmm. is we have the blues starting us off. And Martin is doing some incredible blues work. We rarely get to hear Martin playing bluesy blues, Mm -hmm. but just more proof of the fact that Martin can do whatever he wants and make it sound fabulous. Correct. Fact. Then suddenly, and with no warning, (laughs) add in this mandolin that starts off what does sound to me like a Bavarian, a German piece. A little jig kind of thing. 
Possibly. It, to me, it has that umpa thing in the background, and that's more evident in the live version. Mm, okay. Because you have the piano in the back going. The studio version has some lovely flute counterpoint on it, and it's all in 4 4. I would totally believe that that is an old Bavarian piece of music. Yeah. That goes on for a while. And then suddenly again, with no warning, like a slap in the face at the massage parlor. You pay extra for that. Yeah. But they don't let you know when it's coming. <laughs> we dive into this more Irish sounding one, which has, I think its natural time signature is 3-4. Oh, it's uh, it's all over the place. But it starts out with that. Yeah, that's more likely to be. I don't know all the different types of Irish music. I think a jig is three, four, but I don't know that. I know a slip jig is nine. Something. I feel like that particularly that opener, it feels like I've heard that as a traditional Irish tune many a time. Right. Yes, it's possible that Empty Hats, a band that we listened to on the, at the Renaissance Fair, played that. Yeah. In fact, I, I could almost be certain of it, but I won't be. Yeah. Don't. I, I choose not to. And then as soon as you feel like you have a grasp on that Irish piece, they start provoking the time signature in ways that are probably unethical. Ill-advised, at least. And have since been banned, or at least very much disapproved of by the international community depends on where you're actually doing it i think international waters is the safest place <laughs> <laughs> the micronation of sea land yeah <laughs> and i think there's a little bit of variation between the live version and the studio version there's definitely probably a measure of seven eight in there and i think a measure mm. of, of five four possibly yeah just once just, just a single once. slap just it in there once. Yeah. never again never again you just Maybe want to later. experience it once yeah. just the tip of the time signature <laughs> i feel like more likely that bavarian tune but i feel like i've heard these in kind of those every now and then when you get one of those old live recordings and it's just on the track listing it's like a jig or the martin jig yeah. or yeah. something like that i feel like it's one of these tunes that are commonly played back then I, I can't imagine they've played them terribly recently now but I feel like that was a thing back then, that they used a couple of these tunes. And I can see, especially in the live recording that we have access to, it is just acoustic. Mm -hmm. We just have the piano and two mandolins, and then maybe a pipe coming into the very end. I think that David Pegg and possibly Jerry Conway could have gone off for a, for a sandwich. Although Peggy is credited for the Mando on the album itself, so... Oh, and here is where, actually, I think it gets more interesting, and thank you for reminding me of that. You're welcome. There are two mandolins. I don't think that either of them is Ian. Maybe they are, but I think it's more likely to be Peggy and... Martin, right? Martin. Yeah. Because they're being played with such precision and no shade to Ian, but we've we all remember the track where he's trying to play the mandolin riff and keeps messing up. Sorry. And these are damn hard to play. I used to play a little bit of traditional 
music on the mandolin. And this sort of thing is incredibly difficult to play well and in time. And there's some parts where there's two mandolins doubled up playing a third above each other. That is so complex. The interesting thing is that David Pegg on one of his solo albums is credited with this song and having lyrics to it. Wow. It is also a track, The Swirling Pit, is a song played by Fairport Convention. Ah, and Peggy was from Fairport as well. Yes, so this may have been a cross-pollinated tune. Yeah, the mandolin in here is such a delight. Very, very fun. The start, that makes no sense at all. I love it anyway. The mandolin is great. I really am very tickled by that tinny, dainty little flute at the end, though. It's the most humble and bashful flute I've ever heard from Ian. Like, it's just like, I guess I'll we'll play some flute here, guys, if you don't mind. It may actually be a penny whistle. Probably, yeah. Yeah, I definitely think so. It could be a pipe, a pipe or a whistle, or a, it could be a reed that he found growing by the roadside. <laughs> it certainly doesn't feel like your, your standard concert flute sound. It's no flute d'amour. I am not d'amour with that flute, although I am kind of. It's got more of like a... I don't want to say natural, but more of like a rustic sound, I think, a feel to it. I am more it, but I'm not in amor with it. <laughs> I don't dumb more it. <laughs> I don't know that we've ever talked about two different versions of the same track kind of side by side like this. It's fascinating. Unintentionally, yeah, this has been a quite a, a thought experiment. I have to say that the studio version with the blues intro is so confusing to me that I don't particularly like it. Yeah. <laughs> I like all the elements. It's like when you watch Chop and they're like, the potato is amazing. The lamb is exquisite. This tapenade that you made is great, but I just don't feel like they go together. It feels like three separate dishes. <laughs> <laughs> I know you had to use blue raspberry icy, but why did you put it with the tapenade? It's an right. interesting choice. <laughs> you didn't need the ice cream. That's how I feel about the blues. <laughs> yes, is like, yes. Like, if you're going to serve me ice cream, serve me ice cream, but don't put ice cream with the sausage. Yeah. It almost feels like they found the three pieces and we're like, okay, let's put them together. So it's all on one track, you know, maybe a short track hasn't stopped them before, though. So it's curious. Or even while we can't play it exactly the way Fairport Convention does, why don't we add some blues to it and that'll sort it out. And then they record it. We're like, oh, <laughs> This does Bury not work. It. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's oil and water, these two sounds, hands down, so much. Steve Wilson took the stake out of this track's heart, removed the silver cross from around its neck, gave it some anti-garlic. <laughs> he tried to revive it. It just, it still doesn't pass for human, though. It is interesting, though. I have to admit my own personal feelings, which I, you know I hate doing. I thought we discussed you weren't allowed to have feelings, Omen. <laughs> one slipped through. This is my last one, I promise. Gross. This is not the first time that a band has said, all right, we're going to do electric guitar, we're going to do bass, we're going to do drums, and also play these traditional instruments over top of it and meld the two together. Mm -hmm. I think it so rarely works. Personally, for myself, I don't love it. I don't like it in this context, but I love the live version where it's just acoustic. Mm. 
Yeah. That is so fun. It's so light. It's so refreshing. It would be such a delightful departure in a live concert. And then going back to the full synth regalia with Beastie or, or what have you. So it's fascinating hearing these things together. What a treat to get to listen to different versions of this track side by side, pulled from the depths of time. Thank you, Steve Wilson. Yeah. And thank you, Fairport Convention. Yes. I can't wait to hear their version of it. What if their version is just <laughs> what if that is the swirling pit? And Ian's like, we have to put something on here with this. Can't, we can't do it. Of all the strange things on this track, and I, I'm not sure if I misheard it, but I'm I'm fairly confident. I was listening on the, the really nice big studio speakers when I listened to it, that the very end of this song, the last like 20, 30 seconds, pans to the right, just sits there on the right for some reason. I don't know if Steve like sneezed and, and moved the, the pan over to the right for that part, but... The stage was raked. Oh, that's it. It just rolled over to the right? Yeah, it was on uneven ground. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. The Maison Rouge was tilting to the left. Yeah, so it's a traditional tune. Love to hear it. Love to hear it played by Tall. Love to hear it played by Fairport Convention. Lot of fun. And Tall, obviously, they shot it with the time signature shotgun. Yes, the old spray and pray. Uh, we'll have this over here, and this will be over here, and we'll make this work. Out of seven. Out of seven. <laughs> yeah. Ian had to fill his quota of time signatures. <laughs> Oh, just to observe, the swirling pit has a classic A-A-B structure. You have the... That section. You have it again. And then you go to the B section. It's a very common structure of the Zolt tunes. And I do wonder if it came from Germany over to Ireland. Why not? I will ask. Ask the Germans. The Germans. Omen, what are we talking about next week if you put a gun to my head nick a time signature gun i would not be able <laughs> to tell you with any sense of accuracy what we're listening to or talking about next week though i hope that you won't but i hope you will tell me we are doing another double feature this one is a little more like what we're going to be talking about in the future when we go into jtoll.com this is going to be like Hot Mango Flush and Mango Surprise. It's the main song and then kind of the like the little reprise follow-up. Frothing at the mouth to know what it is. Caliphel and Return to Caliphel. Caliphel and Return to Caliphel. Until next week, this is my entry. I'm Nick McGill. I am updated with new features every year, Omen Thomas said. This is the Bavarian jig filled with Bavarian cream. Talk tall to me. And we are three time signatures in a trench coat, the feckless moms. What are we doing for our closer? I don't know. I don't know. 
a Bavarian man and an Irish man. <laughs> um, a pool store called the Swirling Pit. <laughs> oh, yeah, like a, like a whirlpool. Uh, uh, what's it called? A sauna? The Swirling Pit? Uh-huh. And then what? <laughs> <laughs> That's all I can think of. The, a swirling pit <laughs> makes me think of. Um, yeah, yeah. I've uh, never seen you more confused and disappointed. <laughs> no, no, it's hard. I, I don't have anything better. Um, but I don't even have anything worse is the, is the thing I'm mad about. <laughs> um, we could, we, I mean, we could just end it with, one of us or both of us in a very silly way saying talk tell to me as a proud member one in a german and one in an irish accent just call it let's try that let's do every other word you do irish do which which do you feel oh, more comfortable jesus with? christ every other word yeah in in accents um i'll be i'll be german what are you more comfortable with neither i don't care accent <laughs> Um, I'll be German then. Okay. <laughs> you start. Talk tal to me. No, this is so hard. Um, <laughs> why don't we both do it? Okay, you and do, then do I'll, it. And then I'll cut the two pieces together. Okay, great. Um, German. Talk tal to me is a proud member of the Feckless Moms Audio Network. Talk tal to me is a proud member of the Feckless Moms Audio Network. Gonna slow it down a little bit so I can separate the words out. Talk tal to me, talk tal to me is a proud member. Sounds f-ing Scottish, doesn't it? You sound like Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> Irish. Think, think, think about Liam Neeson. I know you always do. Talk tal to me, talk talk tal to me is a proud member. I will find you and I will kill you. Talk told me is a Talk proud told member. We'll find you and kill you. <laughs> That's it. That's done. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna put that whole thing in there. 